Good morning, and this morning we'll be uh, in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4, the first half of verse 4, that is. <clears throat> Isaiah 35, beginning verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Passage that Mike just referred to. Um, I don't like to talk much about myself and my sermons because it's not all about the preacher. I'm going to do so a little bit this morning just for illustrative purposes. Um, I've been in the ministry now for 40 years. I've done a lot of sermon, sermons, a lot of sermon preparation. I've been in countless number of meetings, done so much planning, so much counseling, so many visits, so many retreats and funerals and weddings, so much set up and take down and clean up. With my dear wife, I've raised 11 children, changing many diapers, cleaning up many messes, feeding them, teaching them to be potty trained, to read, to play ball, to drive a car, to relate to others, to not kill each other. We thought the burden would ease when they grow up, but it doesn't, it hasn't. <laughs> Marianne and I have been together for 50 years, 50 years of helping her and listening to her, 50 years of learning to adjust to a person that's very different than me, 50 years of discovering my own selfishness and pride, of learning lessons through failures and hurts, 50 years of being at her side during hard times, during sick times, during sad times, during nine pregnancies and deliveries, dozens of surgeries, countless doctor appointments and visits to the ER. I'm not saying anything about being a homeowner, about managing my own health issues, about dealing with finances or with parents or with siblings or with relatives or friends or neighbors or businesses, or governments. And in saying all this, I'm not unique. So many people have experienced many more burdens and struggles than I have. I'm not saying this to try to generate compassion. I'm just putting before us what life is like. The title of today's sermon comes from the third verse of the Christmas carol, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. It's entitled, Beneath, Beneath Life's Crushing Load. And the day after Christmas, I think, is actually a good day to think about these things for the Christmas season, though it's a time of celebration and reunion, 
it's also a time of stress. How many of you have felt the stress this Christmas season? Yep, yep. Life is hard. As Job 5, 7 tells us, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, you yourselves know that we are destined for afflictions. It's not just every once in a while that something hard happens. In Genesis 3, we're told that God subjected mankind to pain as a result of human sin. He imposed it upon our existence. We experience a lot of pressure in life, a lot of burden, a lot of pain. Life is hard. And as a result, we get weary. We get weak. We get shaky. We get discouraged. Sometimes it's enough to make our hands weak and our knees wobbly. We don't function well when we get discouraged. And we are not unique. Every person fights a battle with discouragement. Moses did. Elijah did. Jeremiah did. Martin Luther did. Charles Spurgeon did. And many godly people in our past that, whose names we all know were examples of those who some often got very down. Every one of us faces temptations to worry, to fret, to get overwhelmed, to give up. That's just human existence. So one of our greatest challenges in life is learning to manage our morale. We need uplifting. We need strengthening. We need encouragement. There are no easy answers for this, though there are plenty of superficial voices which make it out to be easy. You know, posters that say, be strong. Be encouraged as if you can just decide to give up your weakness and give up your discouragement. In Psalm 119 verse 25, the psalmist says, my soul clings to the dust. And that's what it's like, isn't it? Souls cling to the dust. They don't just fall into the dust so you can pick them up, brush them on, and move along. They cling to the dust. The wording implies that even when attempts are made to lift oneself up, they're often of no avail. My soul clings to the dust. Sometimes pulling your heart out of the dust is like trying to dig up a stump. Now, some of you have never tried to dig up a stump, but trust me, it's a very difficult thing to do, unless you have the high-powered equipment that some people use, but just doing it by hand with a shovel, a pick, is a very difficult thing to, to dig up a stump. 
The Bible does offer us help, though. It tells us, for instance, in Isaiah 40, verses 29 to 31, that God gives power to the faint and increases strength to him who has none. It says, even, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So God gives strength. But that strength that God gives is not automatic. It's not like every time a person begins to feel weak, God just zaps him with strength. If that was the case, no one would ever be observed to be weak. And yet there are a lot of weary, burdened, and weak people around. God may at times act that way and just suddenly strengthen a person directly, but primarily and especially as we grow mature in our faith, God gives us tools to deal with our discouragement. Isaiah 50, 30, I'm sorry, Isaiah 35, 3, the verse that we read this morning, at first it looks like it's just commanding us to be encouraged. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Or perhaps just to keep going even when we feel like giving up. But if we look more carefully at it, it's so much more than that. The Bible, you see, can't be read as if it's a long series of pithy truths. In my opinion, one of the important qualities of good preaching is that it teaches the listener not only what the Bible says, but how to glean from the Bible its riches. One of my goals as I preach is not just to present gold to the congregation, but to teach the congregation to mine for gold themselves. And one of the first lessons in learning to do that is not just to read a verse without paying attention to the context around that verse. So let's look at the context which surrounds Isaiah 35, 3, and 4 this morning. For the two verses before verse 3 and 4, two verses before it says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Verses 1 and 2, they, it says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So verse 1 and 2 told Old Testament believers in the days of Isaiah that their world was a desert which would one day be transformed into a lush garden. This wilderness garden language seems to be based on the creation story in Genesis 1 through 3. 
Originally, of course, man was placed into a garden, the Garden of Eden. But after he sinned, he was driven out of that garden to dwell in a wilderness of thorns and thistles. Adam was tempted in the garden, and his disobedience brought him and all who came from him out into the wilderness of sin. But now in Isaiah 35, God tells us that he's going to reverse this process. And of course, we know that the way he reversed this process was through Christ, who was tempted in the wilderness by his, and by his obedience brought us into the garden of his grace. Thus, these verses in Isaiah 35, which are, are uh, which in verse 1 and 2, are actually the basis of the song that we sing, Lo, how a rose air blooming. And also the birth of the expression, the rose of Sharon, a popular title for Jesus. Now, our translation doesn't mention a rose. It only mentions a crocus. The fact is, though, that we really don't know what kind of flower the Hebrew word here refers to. When the song was written 500 years ago and the phrase, the Rose of Sharon, was coined, Bible teachers thought that it probably referred to a rose. Today, Bible scholars primarily believe that it probably relates to a crocus instead, but nobody really knows. But the point of it is, this is part of a running theme in the prophet Isaiah, which speaks of the coming of Christ and its effect on the world. And now this process of transforming the world into a garden has begun with the coming of Christ. And it continues today with the expansion of his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of sinners. But it won't be finished until the return of Christ and the recreation of the, new, of the heavens and the earth described with garden language, including the tree of life from the Garden of Eden in Revelation 22.2. The point here is this. It may seem like things are getting worse and worse in this world, but the reality is that there's something much more profound and much more powerful going on. Jesus has purchased a piece of worthless, or seemingly worthless, scrub real estate. Land which no one else wanted. And he is turning it into a lush, scenic, exquisite, flourishing, fertile, blooming, bountiful garden. What is this wilderness which he is turning into his paradise? It's the people the Father has given to the Son. They are the wilderness being turned by Jesus into a fruitful garden by the power of the Spirit. It started out very small, of course, like a mustard seed. 
but gradually it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches, as Jesus said in Matthew 13. Through the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is in the extreme makeover business. It doesn't always happen quickly. It doesn't always happen dramatically. But miraculously, inevitably, and gloriously, it's happening according to his agenda, according to his timing, according to his perfect wisdom. And there's no person or power on earth that can stop it. In light of this glorious reality, can we not strengthen our weak hands and make firm our feeble knees? The main weapon that God has given us to fight temptations to be discouraged or to give up, you see, is the truth. This is the means by which God revives our souls. This is the tool by which we should expect God to rescue us from discouragement. You see, one of the main distinctions between a believer and a non-believer is that we have very different interpretations of the world. And the Bible tells us how we as believers ought to interpret reality. It tells us what is actually happening. Because sometimes it's very easy to have an impression of something that's happening and that's actually missing out the main thing that's happening. We see this even in movies. We watch a movie and we're led to think that a certain thing is happening and then later we find out that something else has been happening that we were blind to, that we missed. The truth is that God is turning a wilderness into a paradise. He tells us this in his word. And he wants this to become our interpretation of reality. When our lives feel barren and dry like a wilderness, when it seems like all there is is thorns and thistles, that's just the way things look right now. The truth is, if you're a believer in Christ, your life is in the process of becoming a glorious garden. Your present may feel and look like a desert, but your future is a glorious paradise. It's sort of like watching a movie that you know has a happy ending. Even though in the times of suspense, in the times where it's scary, you know that in the end they're going to be happy and it's going to have a happy result, even though you don't necessarily know all the details. When things are really hard and frustrating, it's so important to remember this, to not listen to appearances, but to listen to God's word. While the plot is building, we sometimes feel discouraged, feel overwhelmed, feel hopeless. And that's when the promises of God come into play in such an important way. 
when we remember where all this is heading and when God's word provokes us to see what's really going on. But it's not just the truth about the future that's powerful. It's also the truth about God. You see, we see here not only that God will one day turn the wilderness into a lush garden, we also see that God is a God who turns wildernesses into lush gardens. So it works in the little stories of life, is not just in the grand scheme of history. And it's also the knowledge that in the day Isaiah, that the day Isaiah was referring to has already begun. That our God is already at work now, doing his work in us and in this world. Someday we'll hear millions of stories of how God's people were strengthened and encouraged and sustained by his word. For now, though, we see the truth of Christ is what we need to strengthen us. God knows every one of our burdens, every one of our struggles, and he knows that we need help. And that's why he's given us plenty of help, plenty of ammunition to fight against discouragement, plenty of resources to address the weakness and the weariness of our hearts, plenty of reasons to resist the temptations that come when we are burdened and stressed. I read the first half of Psalm 119.25 a moment ago. My soul clings to the dust. But now let me read the second half with it. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Here the psalmist teaches us that we need uplifting and that God is the one who does it. We also see that it's not just something that happens directly. It happens by God, but according to his word. That is, it's through God's word that he upholds us and encourages us. You can take a walk. You can eat your favorite food. You can exercise at the gym. You can listen to music or watch a good movie. But the primary way God lifts the spirits of believers is through the truth of his word. Does your soul cling to the dust? Well, God has given you a treasury of help in his word. For the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is on the throne, ruling over all things for good. The Bible tells us that Christ paid for our sins upon the cross so that we are forgiven. It tells us that he has risen and has conquered death. It tells us that since God is for us, nothing can be against us. It tells us that although God sends us suffering, sometimes more than we feel like we can bear, it is not to harm us, but to teach us to trust not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. It tells us that those who continue to serve him faithfully in spite of the hardships and frustrations will reap a harvest of unspeakable joy. 
It tells us that there's great comfort for us in Christ when we suffer. It tells us that we've been given His Spirit to cry out in our hearts, Abba, Father. It tells us that God, by His Spirit, is working to conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus. And it tells us that one day He will return and call all of His children to Himself. And He will recreate the heavens and the earth. And we will live with Him in glory, with no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin, no more discouragement. That God is even now turning the wilderness into a paradise by the power of His grace. And it tells us these things in a million different ways. From the beginning of the Bible to the end. But reading the Bible doesn't automatically deliver us from the discouragement of life or strengthen us in our weakness. That's why we cry out to the Lord to deliver us through His Word. When we come to God's Word in those days when our souls are clinging to the dust, we beg Him to speak to us, to give us the help we need. And if that doesn't work, we ask again and again and again. It's not effortless. It's not just uh, waiting for it. It's like learning to do anything. It takes some effort. It takes intentionality and it takes some practice. But it's very doable for any of us. For the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And thus it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moses said after he gave God's word a second time before he died, he said, these words are your life in Deuteronomy 32. And then Jesus reiterated that in John 63. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there's one more part of this. We've really only talked about Isaiah 35, 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. But this is followed by verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. It's not enough to be strong. We need to work to help others be strong as well. We are surrounded by people who need encouragement just like we do and so verse 4 tells us say to those who have an anxious heart be strong fear not God has given each one of us the important role of ministering to the people around us In Hebrews 3.13 it says encourage one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
And the word that's translated encourage here, or some other translations exhort, is the same word we've talked about before, parakleto, or parakletos, which is also translated comfort. When Jesus says, I'm going to send you another comfort, this is the word he uses. So we're all in this together. We're running in a race that we can't finish alone. We need to work as a team. We need to cheer one another on. I help you when you're weak and you help me when I'm weak. I pull you up when you're down and then you pull me up when I'm down. That's what we're all about as a church. That's why we preach the Bible. That's why we have Sunday school classes and Bible studies. And this is why the Bible tells us not to neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another. Same word. And all the more as you see the day drawing near in Hebrews 10.25. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have felt the burden of our existence for you walked in our footsteps you experienced life here on this earth thank you that you have borne our sorrows and Lord we thank you that even now you are sympathetic to those who struggle who are weak that you care about us that you have compassion towards us and thank you for the beautiful things that you speak to us to put strength into us to lift up our faces we thank you so much for your word dear Lord for the gold mine that we find in it we pray that you would help us to be like Mary who sits at the feet of Jesus to listen to his words. Oh Lord, it's so easy for us to just busy ourselves with the things that we need to do and not really take time to be with you, take time to listen to you. Oh Lord, help us. For some of us are very busy. Some of us have, it's, it's hard to figure out how we can find time to spend with you. We pray that you would guide us, that you would speak to us, that you would be our resting place, and that your word, O oh Lord, would resound in our hearts. May the word dwell of Christ dwell in us richly, O oh Lord. As Jesus said, may your word dwell in our hearts, abide in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.